And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down this week with Alyssa Slotkin, the very impressive congresswoman from central Michigan, who has a really intriguing personal story after a lifetime of service in national security, including three tours of duty as a CIA analyst in Iraq. She ran for Congress in 2018 and became one of a cadre of military and national security veterans to win as Democrats that year. Since then, they've formed a very influential moderate block within the Democratic caucus. They also are, in the main, the most vulnerable incumbents in the upcoming election. I sat down with her yesterday to talk about her life, her career, and the current state of affairs in Washington. Here's that conversation. Congresswoman Slotkin, it's so good to be with you. Thanks for having me. This is great. Thanks for being here. You know, there is a ton of stuff that we need to talk about that's going on right now. But before we do that, I just want to talk about you and your journey, your unlikely journey to this place and your family. Um, you, like me, you come from a family that uh, of of. Jewish immigrants. Talk a little bit about that, about when your family got here and where they settled and what they did. Sure. Well, I think the sort of senior person in my family on the Slotkin side is my great-grandfather who came from Belarus uh, and immigrated through Ellis Island and was the youngest of 13 kids. They oh all came to the United States. So, you know, obviously things were not good back in, in Minsk. Yes. And, and um and uh, ended up working in a slaughterhouse in Buffalo and, um, you know, rose through the ranks, eventually was able to become a, a basically a traveling salesman um, and uh, um, through a whole bunch of innovation, ended up saving enough money that he could start his own little meat company, which was high grade foods. And, and that grew and grew. And um, uh, we ended up doing all the meat for Nathan's hot dogs for the first yeah, 50 man. years. Let me just thank you for that, okay? You're, because you're every Sunday <laughs> when I was growing up, my father and I used to drive out to Coney Island where Nathan's had its, mm-hmm, of course. its flagship place. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd eat hot dogs in the car and listen to the uh, New York football giants before we drove over to my grandmother's house in Seagate, which was right next to that. She, they all were immigrants as well, including yeah. my father uh, from, from Eastern Europe. And man, we love those Nathan's hot dogs. Yeah. I'm yeah. giving you, I'm giving, I know your family doesn't own the business anymore, but I'm giving you an endorsement nonetheless. <laughs> I appreciate that. There's, <laughs> um, there's uh, almost nothing better than an all beef Frankfurter. It's really, it is, um, it is good. Um, and, uh, so the business was based in New York and then the meat industry was moving West, um, over time. And my family moved the headquarters to Detroit in the fifties and moved the whole family out there and, and uh, set up high grade foods in downtown Detroit. We ended up getting the contract to do the hot dogs for Tiger and Stadium. I read all about this 1959. There was a big competition uh, and you won the competition and, and became Ballpark Franks. Yeah, that became Ballpark Franks. And we won the competition actually um, because we figured out, you know, and at that point, anyone who had a, a hot dog company had like a, a German worst monster, like a, like a German sausage maker aficionado who, you know, came up with the, the, the recipe list for all the, the hot dogs and sausages. And he, uh, the one who was working for my family came up with a recipe that, uh, would take a hot dog that sits in the steam in three or four hours of a baseball game and wouldn't shrivel, right. It mm. would plump when you cook them. And he, he figured that out. So it looked, the hot dog looked better after three hours, you know, and, and nine innings. And uh, so that's how they won the contract. And then all of the sort of marketing and TV ads and everything that, that went with Ballpark Franks came from that original, you know, they plump when you cook them, that original concept. That is, uh, I hope that guy got due recognition for, <laughs> the, the, that's like a big invention that should it, be it uh, recognized. It is. Now, and uh, tell me about your folks. My uh, parents, uh, you know, were good Detroiters and my mom was, uh, grew up in Detroit. My dad grew up in, in downtown and, 
Um, they met, uh, they ended up getting divorced when I was, uh, young in the eighties and actually, you know, how young were you? Uh, I think it was 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, uh, the, I think the thing that was definitely different than most divorces going on at that time is that, um, my mother came out. Um, yeah. And live the rest of her life as a gay woman. And in suburban Detroit in 1987, whenever it was, it was not hip to be gay. I mean, that was something that, frankly, we hid. You know, we we yeah. We I was going to ask you, I don't know, how do you process this as an 11 year old? You don't. And in fact, I mean, I'm sorry, especially at that time, there was no discussion with your parents about that stuff, right? Um, uh, and so we actually it went unspoken. And my mom you know, of course, upon reflection had girlfriends and they would come over and we'd spend all this time with them and get to know them. But we never actually articulated, um, you know, her being gay until I think at at the earliest when I was finishing high school, sort of only we had a, a real conversation about it when I was in college. And I went my entire, um, you know, K through 12 with no one in school knowing, I mean, really a very quiet, thing. And, um, and actually my younger brother almost went through high school with no one knowing. And then he had a bad breakup with the girlfriend senior year. And she told the whole school that was like her, her revenge. And, you know, that was, that was the nineties, early nineties. So I, I, um, my mom has since passed away, um, and, uh, died before, uh, you know, there was gay marriage legal. And she had a, a partner and they had a, commitment ceremony and they were together for six years before she died. But I, you know, I just, so I I know she would just be amazed to see the progress that's gone on since she first came out. I want to ask you one other thing about your mom and, and, and her illness in a second, but you report these things, but you were in the middle of it. Like when your brother's girlfriend drops the news on the school and, uh, and all of that. I mean, I'm just trying to get a sense of how this all impacted you. Your parents splitting up, splitting up in this unusual way, having to keep this secret. Uh, I guess keeping secrets became part uh, important for you later yeah, on. When- yes. You know, I think actually the most impactful thing and certainly the thing I connect to my current life more than anything is that um, uh, growing up um, at some point, I started to affiliate as Democrat. And that was unusual because my dad was a devoted Republican, um, lifelong Republican, and I really loved my dad. And I, you know, voted in all the mock elections as a, as a Republican, as a little girl. Um, but growing up with my mom, you know, she was immersed in the gay community of suburban Detroit, which was gay women, but also just a ton of gay men. And in the late 80s, um, if you were in a gay community, people were dying of AIDS constantly. I mean, I still, it's still, it was just such a difficult thing for me to see in front of my eyes, people that I loved, um, getting very, very sick, getting very, very frail and ultimately dying. And that experience, I remember, um, learning that at the time Ronald Reagan wouldn't talk about AIDS and he wouldn't put money into AIDS research. And I remember having the conscious thought in middle school that, well, if, if the Republicans won't put money into AIDS, then I'm a Democrat. Huh. Um, so that was formative. You, you mentioned your mom uh, passed away some years ago. At, she had ovarian cancer. Um, and you had, and she had, as so many people do, um, insurance issues uh, at the time. Uh, this became pretty imp- important to your decision-making later about going into politics. Talk, talk a little about that and that experience of her her battle, both with the insurance companies and the illness. Yeah. Well, because my parents were divorced, my mom, you know, was responsible for her own insurance, right? She wasn't on my father's insurance. She worked. But what, what did she do? At first, she was a travel agent mm-hmm. um, and then later on took on a bunch of different marketing jobs, you know, uh, around town and unbeknownst to my brother and I, um, she really struggled to afford insurance. And at the time, right, it was perfectly legal to gouge people with a pre-existing condition um, uh, when they went to go buy insurance. And my mother 
like a lot of Jewish women, um, she had had a double mastectomy when she was in her thirties. When I was a little, little girl, she had been very sick with breast cancer as a young woman. And so for the rest of her life, she had a pre-existing condition, right? What we call pre-existing condition. She had had a serious cancer as a young woman. So she's out in the world working and her insurance was extremely expensive. And when she lost her job um, uh, in the 2000s, she lost her insurance. And because of that pre-existing condition, she could not afford private insurance just on her own. My brother and I didn't know this, but she, at the time, but she went for almost five and a half years with no insurance. So you think about that. A woman, a Jewish woman, so genetically predispositioned to having breast cancer, ovarian cancer, cancer in general, no checkup annually, no one, no gynecological exam, no one saying to her, you should really get a hysterectomy. You should really get genetic testing. Not, none of that preventive work that goes on when you are, you know, enrolled in health insurance. Um, in 2008, we helped her get insurance. We realized helped her get insurance. And it was a thousand dollars a month and a $10,000 deductible. So her highest bill in suburban Detroit, higher than her rent, thousand dollars was more than her rent. Um, and in the summer of 2009, without us knowing she let it lapse, she paid some other bills. And in September of 2009, she walked to Henry Ford, a, a hospital in Michigan into the ER and was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. So um, I'm in my early 30s, as is my brother. It's the first time, obviously, we've had a parent get sick where you know, we are responsible. Um, your life just explodes. It's just like a grenade goes off in your life when someone you care about gets a terminal diagnosis. And that same week and that same month that we were dealing with that terminal diagnosis was the same month you know, that we were trying to figure out how to declare bankruptcy for her so that mm -hmm. we could pay for her care. Um, and um, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy to have those things happen simultaneously. And um, fast forward to, you know, 2017, when we had coverage for people, finally, with pre-existing conditions, Obamacare, the ACA had made very clear that Health insurance companies could not gouge you because you happen to be born with a pre-existing condition. And then that whole spring was a constant threat of taking it away. And actually, the House of Representatives did vote to repeal the ACA. Yeah. And had a big celebration on the White House yes, lawn for doing and, it. And that was the moment. I mean, I, I was thinking about running, but I was real reticent. I was like, I'm a national security person. What is this whole running thing. How does it work? How do you raise money? How do you like, it was new. And I happened to watch that Rose Garden ceremony after the house voted to repeal the ACA beautiful day carried live on TV. And, um, I could see the man who was my member of Congress, um, in the third or fourth row, you know, they were lining up for a picture or whatever. And he was having the best day of his life. He was smiling and joking and backslapping and this was a signature accomplishment for him that he was going to deny people with pre-existing condition fair access to health care. And it broke me. And I turned to my husband and I said, no, um, you know, you don't get to ignore your constituents, vote against their interests and keep your job. And my husband's 30 years in the military. We met in Baghdad and um, I've worked alongside the military my whole career. We have a term for that, and it is literally dereliction of duty. It's fireable offense. And that was the first day I put something out on social media, like, you know what, watching this thing, this press conference, I'm a, seriously thinking I'm going to run for this seat. And then two months later, we officially, we got in, and a year and a half later, we fired him. Yeah. I, I've said this before many times on this podcast and elsewhere, but, uh, you know, I was in the White House when we passed the Affordable Care Act, and um, I wept the night that we passed it, not because it was a political victory for the president, but because my daughter, Lauren, was uh, ha has had epilepsy since she was seven months old and very serious when she was a kid, 
And uh, we almost went bankrupt because uh, her insurance wouldn't cover medications, second opinions, uh, and all of that. And I realized, well, you know, there are a bunch of families who won't have to go through this uh, anymore. And it makes everything very real when when you've lived it. So I, I, I appreciate your story. And I've heard from a lot of people in the subsequent years who's, who, whose lives were saved because they were able to get insurance that they otherwise wouldn't uh, be able to get. So you ta- you've referenced several times your your uh, career in national security, but that's not what you went to Cornell to study. You you went to study rural sociology, which I didn't even know was a a a subject like that you could that you could study, although probably very interesting. Uh, but uh, how does one how does one stray from rural sociology to national security? Yeah, well, actually, I think that major has now been renamed International Development, which is probably a better name for it. Oh, I see. It. Okay, um, there we go. But no, but it was definitely called rural sociology. And you can imagine my dad, you know, neither of my parents um, uh, went to college and they were like, what the hell are you doing? I mean, you know, it just... Yeah. It, they didn't it, think you could hang a, a rural right. sociology shingle and open <laughs> right. up a shop. Right, right. Um, and to be honest, um, um, I was just always interested in, in international development, international affairs. I did my junior year abroad in Kenya, um, and lived in a village. With, Why you were know, you, why were you interested in that? Frankly, I really didn't travel outside the United States as a kid. Um, but that's what I love to read about. And that's what I love to, to just sort of learn about. I have a big history buff. I, I don't. I don't know how it really got started because I didn't have an, a real experience um, traveling abroad, but I just, it sounded amazing. And I just really wanted, um, you know, even going to Cornell versus going to Michigan or Michigan State was controversial because um, we have great state schools. And I just wanted to like see new things and go places. And um, so this was my way to do that. Um, and, uh, and actually, I, I did, you know, after college, um, I did work, um, you know, my first very first job was back in East Africa, um, in Tanzania. Um, and then I worked in inner city Boston with, yeah. you know, refugee and immigrant uh, communities. So that was sort of the track that I was on. Um, and 9-11 was really the thing that that was sort of the pivot from development work to national security. Yeah, well you you went to Columbia and my understanding is like it was your second day yeah in school when yes. 9/11 happened. So you were in Manhattan uh when 9/11 happened? Yes, I had just moved back uh uh to the United States. I had been again working abroad and um and uh it was my second day of school. I was actually in a remedial economics class. Um, and I stepped out to make Xerox copies of something, I think for the professor. And I walked out and this guy I had met in orientation said, oh, it's so weird. A little plane just hit the World Trade Center. And, you know, that kicked off um, uh, basically every student in the program circling around the one television in the student lounge. Uh, we watched, you know, obviously the second plane. We Anyone who's in the city was watching New York One, which had Live, yes, a live sure. feed. And unfortunately, you saw the plane go in, you saw people trying to, you know, jump from the fires. I mean, it was a very visceral uh, coverage there. And the students started to get organized. We actually thought like a lot of people, there'd be um, a, a lot of wounded. I mean, the truth is you either walked out yourself um, or, or many people perished. I mean, yes. there just wasn't a ton of, but there's a hospital very close to Columbia. So we knew we thought they were going to need blood and they were going to need volunteers. And the truth was what they had more than anything at the hospital was the complete um, uh, overload of their telephone lines because families were looking for their loved ones and calling every single hospital in the city. So what they needed were people and they set up like banks of phones. And, and of course they had very few people who had been transported there. And so volunteers could say, I'm sorry, sir. You know, your wife isn't isn't a patient here. There was a ton of students who could not get over the bridges, the bridges and under the tunnels to get home to New Jersey or wherever they lived. So I had a couple of students who slept on my floor that night um, for a couple nights, actually. 
Um, so we organized kind of a round robin to make sure people had a place to stay. It just, it, it, um, and then I lived on the street with a fire station and, you know, they lost, I think three guys. Um, and, uh, so that became kind of a year long vigil. And what I will remember always, um, were two things, uh, you know, obviously you remember the smell and the sound yeah. of F-16s flying over, I mean, a jet flying over Manhattan is not a normal sound. I remember those two weeks afterwards, how people treated each other. Yes. Um, it was like New Yorkers were talking to each other and putting their arms on each other. And, yeah. you know, and um, I remember the woman, the cashier at the little grocery store, Bodega, I said, I'm so sorry you have to be working and and the line is out the door. And she's like, this is the best day I've ever had. Every single person has asked me how I am and thanked me for my work. And then the funeral. Let me interrupt you. Let me just interrupt you a second, because isn't that so interesting? I mean, I was thinking about it this weekend, you know, as these scenes from the uh, from Kentucky and Illinois and other places where these tornado, these horrific tornadoes ripped through. And destroyed whole towns. And, you know, uh, first of all, every single one of us feels a sense of identification with the people who've lost their homes or lost their loved ones. Um, You know, it takes these tragedies to rekindle a sense of community uh, that, you know, so many forces are trying to destroy. And uh, and that certainly, 9-11 was one of those moments. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you, you, so you were talking about the funerals. Yeah. I mean, you know, what I remember that entire fall and into the winter, um, was, you know, whenever they would find the remains of a fireman, police officer, um, I think as tradition goes, they would have the procession often down Broadway and you would hear the bagpipes. Um, and I remember just being in class all fall and you'd be sitting there talking about some, whatever, you know, unrelated thing. And you'd hear in the distance bagpipes and you'd know it's, they found another, another person and they're laying his remains or, you know, to rest. And, um, you know, it was a horrible thing that happened, but I'm so glad that I got to see, um, that city and our country, and, and experience what it can be like when we really remember we're on the same team. Yeah. It's very important now when, when things are so difficult now that I have that reference point yes. um, to, to sort of be a touchstone for me. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You know, you hear stories all the time, including from many of your colleagues who have served, of what you said before, that that was sort of a, that was a, a watershed event. Did, so what were you thinking? Did you, how quickly did you say, I need to figure out a way to get into uh into this fight, into national security, into, I mean, how did that conversion happen? Well, uh, like I said, 9-11 was so early in my graduate school experience that we were still basically doing orientation and introduction. And one of the things that they were doing was each um, major, basically, um, was having kind of an open house and you could go and hear the pitch from the lead professors on that major. And kind of what trajectory would that put you on and what jobs do people typically go into? And of course, I had applied to do international development work. That was, you know, and I thought maybe I'll go be the head of some large, you know, non-governmental organization one day, you know, that that is all over the world. That was sort of the, the vision. And I, after 9-11, I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to a few others. And I went to the, the concentration called international security policy. And I heard from um, a whole different group of professors and students um, who were headed for national security work. And and I remember clearly, I'm still very close with uh, this professor. He said, 
if you're in here, it means you want to go and serve your country. You're almost certainly going to go to Washington or go into the military or go into the State Department and go abroad. This is this is where we train um, people who want to go into national security. And I remember, um, like, just knowing in my gut that this was the place I was supposed to be. I changed my my concentration um, that week, I think, mm. and you know from there. The rest is a is a very different path. It's a path that led you to the CIA. Yeah, uh, ha- they came and recruited you. I guess partly because you spoke Arabic, and there was a, and and uh, there was a need for, uh, you know, there was a sudden dramatic <laughs> desire for uh, for for people who spoke Arabic, and you became an analyst. But I know this is the part where all you guys who've been in the CIA clam up on me, but. Um, tell me, tell me about that experience, uh, how you got recruited and what your work was like. And then I want to talk about your three tours of, of duty in Iraq. Sure. Well, actually the same professor, his name is Dick Betts. Um, you know, a year after nine 11, um, I'm in my second year of graduate school and I got an email from him. You know, this is back. There's no smartphone. So you have to go to the computer lab to check your email Yes. And um, I got an email kind of late um, and, that said, uh, Alyssa, I signed you up. You know, the CIA recruiters are coming to campus and I signed you up for a, a small lunch at the faculty house. You know, here's the times. And I, I honestly, I, I didn't really, I had never really thought specifically about the CIA, but I didn't want to insult the professor. So I ran home. I put on the only suit that I had, um, ran back and went to the lunch. And it was about, I think, six students, maybe three or four analysts from the CIA um, who, you know, I now know were sort of like tapped to do this recruitment mission and go around the country. Yeah. They were probably pretty effective at it too. They were effective, but they weren't effective, not in the way um, that you would expect. I think I went into it, you know, this is, if you fast forward to this fall of 2002, that's the run up to the Iraq war. Yes. Right. Yeah. Congress was debating, the Senate was debating the, uh, the authorization, authorization of use of force for, for Iraq at that time. Right. And I was already someone who had worked in the Middle East. Like you said, I had taken many years to learn Arabic. Um, and it was like, what are we doing? We're going to what? I mean, it, anyone who had any background or expertise in the Middle East, I think, was appropriately skeptical of a large invasion of Iraq. And um, here come these CIA analysts, and I honestly expected them to just toe the line, right? To toe the line um, of the time, which was we've got to go, and there's a connection between, you know, Iraq and, and Al Qaeda and all that kind of stuff, as much as they could talk about. And these analysts were, I think, probably more open than their bosses knew they were being. And they were saying, look, we we are here in our jobs because we get to speak truth to power. We write the president's daily brief. Um, that's basically like a classified newspaper every morning. And um, if you are the author and the, the thing goes through editing and you think it's lost its meaning, you as a junior analyst get to say, nope, I veto this going to the president. It's gone to, you know, it's changed tone. You, you have autonomy to say no. Um, and a lot of them voiced real concerns about a potential war with Iraq. And I was um, shocked by that, that they were that open. It, it's so interesting that you say this because last uh, week I had a conversation here with General McChrystal, mm-hmm. who you probably know mm-hmm. because you were there in Iraq when he was quite mm-hmm. a prominent player yep. in Iraq. In and and he was uh, he said that he was in the Pentagon, much to his chagrin, because uh, he said he spent his life trying to avoid that, but for the run-up to the war. And uh, he, he said he always assumed that, that this was just a bargaining chip with Saddam Hussein that he never believed until he went in to see uh, Don Rumsfeld, the defense secretary. And he, he said he asked, for, they, they said, well, we'll need 50,000 troops. And he, he said he approved it within 30 seconds. He said, this is a guy who wouldn't give you, if you asked for five, he'd say, how about two? 
And he said, and he walked out of there with a colleague and said, my God, they're going to do this. And he called it the worst foreign policy decision of the last 40 years. You, you agree with that? I, I certainly think it was a mistake. And actually, I had friends in graduate school. You know, there were a lot of people who were very upset about the run up to the war. And when I decided to join the CIA, and especially when they made me an Iraq militia and terrorism analyst and sent me to Iraq, my friends were like, what are you doing? You know, how, how we know that you had grave concerns about this war. And I said, yeah, but now we're in, right? And so once we're in, I want to come out of there as cleanly and as responsibly as we can. Um, and we had real fights over this. Um, but I think certainly, I, I don't think there's a way to, to look back on that war um, and see it as anything other than a strategic mistake for a whole bunch of reasons. Yeah. I mean, one of his points was that as uh, loathsome as Saddam Hussein was, he was a, a stabilizing influence. And the and unless you had something uh, equally stable to put in there, you were opening the door to all kinds of stuff that we've seen, including the emergence of Iran as a a, a much more threatening force in the region. And then just, I mean, obviously, I'm on the Armed Services Committee. I focus a lot on China. Yes. Um, and it is very, very clear that there's real opportunity costs for the investment we made in 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan. That mm -hmm. when we are putting so much effort, so much time, so much equipment, so many of our resources into those wars versus keeping closer tabs on what China was doing with their yeah. military and, and investments and money. I mean, I just, I think that we can't forget the opportunity costs when it comes to looking at, uh, at us versus China. So three tours of duty there. And just tell me, uh, I mean, as much as you can, I know that, you know, you, you, as you said, you were uh, focused on militias. That was, uh, you know, that's probably where you ran into General McChrystal, who was, uh, who was, uh, you know, working special ops and going after the militias. Were you in danger? Did you, I mean, I know you carried, carried a weapon. Did you have to use it? No, I never had to use it. And, and frankly, um, if, if I, as a CIA analyst was having to use either the Glock or the M4 that I was carrying, then something had gone very, very wrong. Right. It was like, um, uh, then, um, if I'm in, in, there's an IED attack in a convoy of vehicles I'm in, and it's a last resort, um, self-defense kind of move. I was not on the front lines. Um, and, um, but, uh, look, anyone who served in Iraq, either in the green zone or many, many of our other forward operating bases, um, there were certain times, especially in my second tour and third tour where you were just being, there were rockets and mortars, um, uh, coming from militias constantly. There was constant threats anytime you got on the road, so I don't think anyone would call serving Iraq safe, but I just was not on the front lines, um, mm -hmm. you know, in combat. Um, and my tours were very, very different. My first tour, I was very junior. I had less than a year under my belt at the CIA when they sent me. And I was there to help our operators, you know, refine their collection and, and what we were getting from the Iraqis. Um, and I was the backup briefer to the ambassador, you know, kind of the, the underling. And then the, the, you know, the senior briefer to the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador, John Negroponte at the time, fell just by chance in Saddam's palace and broke her wrist and her knee. And all of a sudden, I'm now the lead briefer for the ambassador um, and also briefing the commanding general, General Casey at the time. So the, the, um, that was very different than, say, my second tour where I was um, leading a team looking at the connections between the militias and the, the rockets that were being fired at us in the green zone and, and elsewhere and, and Iran, how they were getting their weapons, where they were getting their money, their training, um, traveling around the country, getting a better assessment of that and making some of the first connections that this stuff was really just being provided by Iran to shoot and kill, shoot at and kill U.S. forces. So um, very different things. Um, third time I was doing a, a negotiation on our withdrawal. So, um, very different things. Uh, and, um, um, but when you're there, I don't think there's anyone who serves in these places and, and who under, who, who thinks, yeah, our strategy is going great. 
everything's great. You see it for what it is when you're there. You just want your friends and your colleagues to survive and to, um, and you want the Iraqis to have a life. Um, So you do everything you can to make sometimes bad policy better. Did you lose people close to you? People, what was the, I know something great came out of it, which is you, you, you met your husband in, in Saddam's palace. Mm -hmm. So I guess these fairy tale stories begin in palaces, <laughs> however shambolic they are. Right. I say wherever good Jewish girl meets her husband. <laughs> but um, what scars did that experience leave on you? Well, I think just particularly actually on my third tour, we were being rocketed um, so frequently. Um, most of many, many folks moved into Saddam's palace and were sleeping on cots because at least it was, you know, sort of a hardened structure rather than the trailers we were living in. Um, um, and, you know, we lost a lot of really good people um, and people who were, you know, for instance, like just at the gym, you know, and um, uh, uh, a friend of mine, Stuart Wolfer, um, uh, we, there was a group of us, we always had dinner on Friday night at the chow hall and we had dinner and I sat right across from him and heard about his kids and his life back home. And, you know, his life is a jag and, and, and all these things. And then Sunday he was gone. He was hit at the gym. Hmm. And did you ever get to know his family after that? Actually, we still meet on the anniversary of his death. Um, uh-huh. Sometimes, you know, by phone, sometimes by Zoom, but for his 10 year anniversary, which was in um, 2018, uh, we met in his family's home in New York. Um, People came in from all over the place. I mean, because, of course, in the green zone, it's there's Australians, there's people Mm -hmm. from other countries, there's people in uniform, out of uniform. So we've um, through the, I think, support of his family really kept that up and um which is is helpful, and now his kids are are basically grown. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, but grown without him, which grown is, without him, which is I I tell everybody the most sublime moments of my life these days is seeing my grown kids and their and my grand. I have a couple of grandkids, and mm-hmm. it's sad to think of not having that opportunity. I want to ask you, in the context of your experience, you were around a lot of weapons. You were around a lot of death, and this may seem like a non sequitur, but I don't think it is. You just had a terrible incident, uh, not an incident, a tragedy uh, in your in your congressional district at Oxford High School, uh, where a young man, 15 years old, came in with a, a semi-automatic weapon uh, that was gifted to him by his parents, uh, and he killed four of his classmates and wounded seven others. Um, you know, uh, I don't know what we do about, and I know you have a proposal, which I want to talk about. I don't know what we do about a country that's overrun with weapons. You know, we have more guns than we have people. I know this is a very divisive issue, probably even in your own district, but like, <laughs> it, it's just astonishing to me that weapons of war have now fallen into the hands of kids who 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 have problems and use them in such tragic ways. Yeah. No, I've worked on a lot of difficult things and seen a lot of difficult things and the past 2 weeks have been some of my hardest um work experiences because um there's just something um just so horrible about kids killing kids in a school, right? In a place that's supposed to be a safe place. Yes. Um, um, and I think what most of what I've been doing is just, I would call it crisis response. Um, and you know, the, 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 the sort of blast wave that comes when something like this happens to an entire community. And it's that, that blast radius has spread over a ton of our state because we have copycat threats and kids out of school. We really haven't gotten kids back consistently to school in many, many school districts in Michigan. And, you know, there's a lot of just visceral fear and, you know, it was a, it was actually a nine millimeter and 
so not an assault weapon. Uh-huh. It was given to him, um, given to him by his parents on Black Friday. They went out and bought it and and gave it to him. And he went to the range with his mom on Saturday. And and I think it's it is a Oxford is a very um, conservative community um, and lot of responsible gun owners. And look, I grew up in a gun owning family. My dad is a, is a responsible gun owner. I think what has been uh, sort of the unanimous sentiment is that these parents need to be held accountable. Um, there is a mountain of evidence that allowed our prosecutor to, to, to charge them. But, um, you know, responsible gun ownership means that if you have a child um, in the home, and you give them easy access to that weapon, if they go off and do something horrible, injure someone, injure themselves, commit a crime, you should be held accountable for that, or at least have the option. And um, I think that's the most kind of common sentiment on ter- in terms of next steps. But the truth is, I've gone to a lot of vigils and church services, and the, the emptiness people feel, um, knowing that we have a culture where kids kill kids, um, and not knowing how to stop that, it's really made a lot of people kind of question what to do because it's so big. Um, and, um, I, you know, I think in January we'll be able to have um, quiet conversations about what more people think needs to be done. But right now it's just that visceral crisis response. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. Just to return to your history and, and career, you you wound up uh, at the Pentagon as the uh, acting assistant secretary of state for defense policy. And in that role, uh, your portfolio was Africa, the Middle East and Europe, including Syria. Uh, and uh, there's an awful lot of discussion about how uh, the Obama administration, my administration, I, I, I was out of government at that time, handled that period of, of time. And you must have been deeply involved in those discussions. Yes. I mean, the, certainly, you know, anyone who worked on the Middle East and it was it was the Arab Spring, you know, we, yes. were, we were watching kind of monumental change going on in a region yes. that was considered to be pretty static, you know, yes. um, and um, and, but I, I will be honest that many of us inside the, the, um, national security, you know, world did not feel like we had a, a voice in that conversation. And I remember, I can remember the moment when I, the statement came out, um, from the white house, you know, uh, president Assad had been using chemical weapons against his people that there was terrible things going on. And, um, the, the word came out from the White House that, quote, Assad must go. Three words. And I remember turning to a colleague of mine. I said, that's, that's regime change. If we're not leaving the door open for negotiation with a terrible human being, right, a terrible leader, the alternative is regime change. And once you tell one of these autocratic leaders that our policy is for them to go, there is no negotiating something. Um, and, um, I remember kind of stopping in my tracks, especially as someone who had worked many, many years in and on Iraq saying, Oh my God, you know, is this, is this where we're going again? So, um, yes, I worked, um, and had to deal with the aftermath of, of so much of what went on in Syria, um, particularly ISIS and the rise of ISIS and takeover of Iraq and Syria, um, but you know, when you're in national security, sometimes you have a voice and sometimes decisions are made for you and you mm-hmm. have to adjust and react to it. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds as if you feel that that was a, a serious mistake to, uh, to, to, to make that pronouncement. And, well, uh, let's just say this, it's a big decision to declare a policy of regime change through public, uh, statement. Um, it's a, it's a, 
profound decision to make. And I wasn't sure we knew we were making it right. It's, it's something that sounds strong in a public statement, but behind it has a whole lot of meaning. And, um, uh, I, that was not something at the time I felt was well thought through. You were among a large group, an impressive group of uh, veterans of the military, veterans of national security who ran in, in uh, 2018 and got elected to Congress. You got elected in a, in a difficult district. You, you went to Congress. Tell me what surprised you when you got there. Well, look, I had at the Pentagon had gone to brief and testify in front of Congress many, many times, especially on the issue of ISIS and, and it's spread across Iraq and Syria. So it's not like I was unfamiliar with some of the problems in Congress. I mean, I would go and brief um, and I would walk away and I'm like, well, that was not a club I was looking to be a part of. Right. I mean, and so it, it, it was not on my plan to run for Congress. I just felt something had to be done with what I was seeing going on in the country. Um, I had worked for, for Republicans. I worked for George Bush in the Bush White House. And um, he was the one who pulled me down to work for him on Iraq. And I was there the day that he left office and the, the next you know week when President Obama came in and did the same job for two very different presidents. But what was going on in the country in 2017, 18 was just very different. Um, when I came to Congress, um, <laughs> uh, I have some friends who will tease me about this now. I went around asking everybody, okay, we just won. We retook the house. That was the plan. Now what's the strategic plan? What are we going to do with it? We all talked about the importance of healthcare and bringing down the price of healthcare and bringing down the price of prescription drugs and doing infrastructure. So what's the plan? When are we doing those things? What does it look like? What's the timeline? I brought my Pentagon and <laughs> CIA brain to U.S. Congress and, and assumed that there was a strategic plan. And then when I couldn't find it, I assumed they just weren't telling the freshmen because they didn't want it to leak or something. And I think what has been one of the hardest parts for me um, coming into this place is that I don't think that Congress operates. I know it doesn't operate like that. It's 435 entrepreneurs, right, who are working. Especially for their when district. you have an evenly divided Congress, Especially where every, now, every vote right. is meaningful. So I think that surprised me, and I still culturally want more organization, more structure, more strategic planning, more message planning, and that's been a hard, the hardest part of culturally getting used to this place. You ran, and I think you promised to vote against uh, Speaker Pelosi, probably a good political position in your district. You know, and, and I, true confessions, I'm a big admirer of hers because you, we mentioned the Affordable Care Act. There are a lot of mm -hmm. things that I don't think would have happened, but for her. Do, has your attitude about her changed? Uh, what have you learned about her? And she just, uh, there was a story saying, I haven't heard her say it, but that she was going to run again mm -hmm. and so on. I mean, do you, do you still have the same feeling about her that caused you to vote against her uh, for speaker? Well, look, I, you know, when I made that decision as a candidate, um, I, I wanted to be upfront and direct and transparent with her. So before I ever talked about that publicly, um, I asked to speak with her. I, ne I had never talked to her before. And I walked her through my reasoning. And that doesn't mean she liked it, but I, I tried to be respectful, I guess, is the, is the point. Because I come from a culture where you may not always agree with the person in leadership, but you respect the importance of leadership and therefore you treat people decently. Um, I've tried to keep that up. Um, but to be honest with you, I, I, um, it is very hard to be in the Midwest and see yourself in the Democratic Party. The leadership tends to come from the coasts. And I, I think it's important that we have more Midwestern leadership in the top ranks of the Democratic Party, that we have a variety of experiences. Um, and 
um, that was what I communicated to her, right? Um, I'm not a, a personal, you know, uh, backstabbing person, but that's what I feel. And so um, I, I didn't vote her, for her in 18. I didn't vote for her in 20. Um, we continue um, to work uh, together all the time. She is the speaker. Um, but, um, and look, I'm a respectful person, um, but we disagree on a number of things. And I've tried to be uh, transparent about that. Mm-hmm. So if she ran, if she were to stand again, would you, would you keep that same position? I, I made a commitment and, and I live by my commitments. I mean, that's to your to constituents. Me. I mean, that you to my, to yeah. my bosses who are my constituents. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think people forget that, that, um, again, in Congress, it's not your peers who can fire you. It is the people you represent. And those are your bosses. So that's who I answer to. To be frank, the, the, I've been around this a lot, a lot myself for a long time. It feels like the environment in Congress is very rancid right now, that the uh, relationship between Republicans and Democrats is completely fractured, that the relationship between Democrats and Democrats is often very, very tough. Uh, talk about that. I mean, are things getting worse or is that just my imagination? Uh, well, I, I guess I don't have the perspective because I've only, I mean, you know, I was only been here three years, but in those years, it has definitely gotten harder, right? So, and I hear about these good old days, you know, with the sort of Tip O'Neill having a drink with Ronald Reagan. It's kind of this iconic thing. And I do think it's gotten harder. That said, um, I think it's both better and worse than what people think. It's better in that there are still Democrats and Republicans who spend time together and work together. And I'm in a group called the Problem Solvers Caucus. It's a bipartisan caucus. You literally have to find someone of the other party to link arms with in order to get in this group. You take a civility pledge. You don't campaign against each other. And you work every week on legislation. Um, We worked quite a bit on the infrastructure bill that just got passed. Mm -hmm. Um, And by the way, let me interrupt you. Did you see the story this morning about totally predictable that the republic, many of the Republicans who had opposed the bill, are now enthusiastically endorsing the spending of the money in their districts, in their states, and so on? Totally predictable. And I told I was speaking in front of a bunch of uh, my operating engineers right after we passed it. And I'm like, you better believe I'm going to keep book on all the politicians (laughs) who voted against it and are going to show up at every ribbon cutting, put every bridge and tunnel behind them for their commercial. It's the hypocrisy has has just begun because that money is going to start to be spent, you know, this spring and summer. So, Alyssa, talk to me about the relationship between that problem solvers group, you moderates and progressive so-called progressives in the in the House, six of them voted against the infrastructure bill. Mm-hmm. And there's been quite a bit of back and forth between those groups. And Abigail Spanberger, your colleague, was quite critical of of them around the vir- time of the Virginia election. Tell me about that relationship. Well, and yeah, just as, a, as an interesting anecdote, since you were asking about all of this, is the infrastructure bill, which is an extremely popular bill and once in a generation investment in infrastructure that we need would not have passed the house in the end if we hadn't had at least some republicans vote with us and i give them a lot of credit well they and they took a lot of crap for it too they they did from and they their do. own from their own members in, including it we all heard uh, fred upton's mm-hmm. voicemail people threatening his life for voting for roads and bridges right Right. Which is insane. So I just I just want to acknowledge that we had six Democrats who, who voted against the bill, but we had, I think, yes, 10 th- or 11 thir- Republicans. Th- 13 Republicans. 13, but, thank you. But the question I'm asking is, what is that relationship? Because my, my read is, look, I, I think that people have different orientation about politics and about why they're there. I give, I mean, I, I believe these progressive members want to do a bunch of stuff. And, you know, I keep mm-hmm. saying that this uh, this this build back better bill that you guys are waiting to deal with again is uh, everybody's treating it like the last plane out of Kabul. You know, they it's like they want to get their priorities on because they're 
They don't think there's going to be another opportunity. So I can't fault, I, I don't think I can fault them for wanting to do as much as possible. Uh, but uh, what are your relationships like with with those folks? So it varies. I mean, look, I, I will work with anyone, Democrat or Republican, if you're there to work, if you're based in fact, if your um, logic is sound and you're ready to negotiate and you understand that compromise isn't a dirty word. Um, I will work with anyone um, on on either side of the aisle. And there are Republicans who I work with every single day under those guidelines. And there are progressive Democrats I work with every single day. There are progressive Democrats who are there to work and get their thing done. Like name a few. Well, so for me, I I negotiated with um, Pramila Jayapal, Mm -hmm. right? Like we don't agree on a lot of things, but I feel I can negotiate in good faith with her. Um, and that's, that's what I need as someone who comes from a background of negotiating international agreements. Do you think when I sat with the Russians or I sat with the Iraqis or I sat with all these folks that we loved each other all the time? God, no, you negotiate with people who you don't agree with, but you got to negotiate in good faith and you got to be aiming towards substance in my book and not just the ding you're going to, you know, the, the, high, the, the sexy tweet you're going to have. And what I, I guess, ask from my progressive colleagues, and many of them understand this, is that you represent your district and I'll represent mine. And I won't tell you how to represent the Bronx. Don't tell me how to represent mid-Michigan. We are different people. And my people, my constituents have just as much of a right to be represented as yours. Um, and by the way, 7% of my districts on Twitter. So if your sense of what we should do on something is being primarily pulled out of Twitter, maybe that's where your district is. That is not what affects people's pocketbooks and their kids in my world. So you respect me. I respect you. It's got to be two way street. You speak about where your district is. Where is your district? It. <laughs> <laughs> because you just you've just gone through a redistricting process, and and mm-hmm. you're going to apparently have to move in order to run. I mean, this it adds. You had a difficult district. This seems to add a degree of difficulty, uh, in addition to all the headwinds. Uh, so tell me, what are you doing? Well, first of all, it's not it's not final, so I can't yes. you know can't say anything definitive. Secondly, uh, asking a Michigander where they live or where their district is without having a video where I can hold up my palm, my mitten <laughs> and show you visually where yeah. I am in the state. Um, it's very hard for us Michiganders, but um, it's a mid Michigan kind of uh, center of the state um, around centered around Lansing, Michigan. We don't know exactly what will happen. Um, it, it's going to be getting exciting here to find out in the next uh, month or so, but um it, it looks like it's going to move towards Lansing at the center with a lot of much more rural counties surrounding it. And I think um, that's, that is um, where some of my concerns about the strategic play of the Democratic Party really come into the forefront is in rural America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I won my district last time not out of the suburbs and the places that also voted for Joe Biden. My district went for Donald Trump. Um, Where I succeeded was in these small towns, small communities, 1,200 voters. Um, And why did I do well or maybe even just lose better in those communities? Which is what you have to do, yeah. Yeah, I went there. Mm -hmm. I went there. And I spent the day there and I went everywhere. I went to the mayor's office and the fire station, the VFW and the diner. And we got invested in their sewage problems and in their infrastructure problems and all these things. And people would say to me, we haven't seen a Democrat here in 40 years, right? You have to go to places and you have to help people's pocketbooks, their kids. And that's how you um, campaign differently. It's not, at least in my experience, it's not Twitter. Well, we'll watch with interest to see what your district ends up looking like, what your race ends up looking like, what 2022 ends up looking like right now. Tough for Democrats. But, you know, one of my concerns, honestly, is that some of the best members are the ones who are going to be most 
exposed because some of the best members are people who have to work in districts where you actually have to work across party lines, across cultural lines, as you do. And therefore, uh, those races are the ones that are on the bubble, not the ones where you have a solid red or solid blue district. And that that would be a tragedy for the country. And certainly uh, losing you would be. Well, uh, so I so appreciate your time, Alyssa Slotkin. Hope to have more conversations in the future. Wish you the best. Thank you. This has been great. Thanks. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.